Hello, my name is Jesse Cryer. I'm a counselor in the Rules Division of the WTO Secretariat, and I'm here to talk to you today about rules in the multilateral trading system governing the provision of subsidies. Now, it's interesting to note that there have been rules about subsidies in the multilateral trading system since its inception. Already, the GATT 1947 had subsidies disciplines in Article 16 of that agreement. There was also an Article 6 of the GATT 1947 that provided for the imposition of countervailing measures with respect to subsidized imports. Now, the rules have evolved over time. So, in the 1950s, there were amendments to, the, to Article 16 of the GATT 1947, especially with respect to export subsidies. In the 1970s, there was the negotiation in the Tokyo Round of an agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures, which was a plurilateral agreement. And then in the Uruguay Round in the late 1980s and 1990s, the members negotiated a multilateral agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. That agreement is still in effect today, and that represents the existing law. We're currently involved in another negotiation, a new round of negotiations called the Doha Development Agenda. And in the DDA, the members are authorized to negotiate clarifications and improvements to the existing rules on subsidies and countervailing measures. So there have been rules on subsidies since the beginning of the GATT system. Those rules have been in continual evolution and are continuing to evolve. Now, why would we have rules about subsidies in the multilateral trading system? It's certainly not because the multilateral trading system is interested in regulating subsidies per se. To the contrary, the WTO agreement recognizes in a variety of places that subsidies may have a role to play in members' economic and social policies, for example. So the intention is not to prohibit subsidies. However, the members also have recognized that subsidies can have effects on trade, and the rules are intended to speak to those effects on trade. Particularly, um, the members were concerned that it might be difficult to achieve the objective of progressive trade liberalization if there were no disciplines on the provision of subsidies. Let me give a couple of examples. On the one hand, obviously a central aspect of any trade negotiation is increased market access, the reduction of tariffs, for example. And uh, it's also clear, however, that the provision of subsidies can reduce the value of a tariff concession or even completely negate it. On the other hand, a member who's being asked to make market access concessions to reduce his tariffs may be very reluctant to do so if he believes that his domestic producers will be facing competition from subsidized imports in his market. So in order for members to be comfortable negotiating progressive trade liberalization, it's necessary to have some disciplines on subsidies that speak to the possible effects of those subsidies on trade. Now, let me say a few words about the scope of uh, the disciplines in the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. First, uh, many of you are probably aware that although the multilateral trading rules traditionally dealt only with trade in goods, in the Uruguay round we also negotiated an agreement on trade and services, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, or the GATS. During that negotiation, there was an effort to negotiate specific subsidies rules in the services sector. 
However, those negotiations were not successful. As a result, the General Agreement on Trade and Services says with respect to subsidies only that it recognizes they may have a distortive effect on trade and services. And it calls on members to negotiate disciplines to address those effects. So the General Agreement on Trade and Services has no specific disciplines on subsidies. The Agreement on Subsidies and Countermeasuring Measures is an agreement on trade and goods and only applies in that sector. Now, even with respect to the goods sector, there are some limitations on the scope of application of the agreement, and specifically with respect to agriculture. In principle, the subsidies disciplines in the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures apply horizontally to all products. But for historical reasons, the development of trade disciplines in the agriculture sector has been both difficult and perhaps in some sense has lagged behind negotiations, for example, with respect to industrial products. In the Uruguay round, there were sectoral negotiations on agriculture with the intention, with the goal of fully integrating agriculture into the trading system. And the result of that negotiation was an agreement on agriculture. That agreement was a major accomplishment, but the members recognized that it did not fully integrate agriculture into the multilateral trading rules. So in the area of subsidies, the agreement on agriculture has some specific rules about, on the one hand, domestic supports, and on the other hand, with respect to export subsidies. Those rules are, in some respects, arguably um, more flexible, uh, less constraining than the rules in the agreement and subsidies and countervailing measures. And um, recognizing that there was need for further negotiations in this area, the members agreed in the agriculture agreement to a build-in agenda of further agriculture negotiations. And they uh, included a provision in the Agreement on Agriculture, which is popularly known as the Peace Clause, which provided that for a transitional period, certain measures, including domestic supports and export subsidies that were in full conformity with the Agreement on Agriculture, would not be subject to certain provisions of the Agreement on Subsidies and Countervailing Measures. The idea was to provide time for further agreements uh, in the agricultural sector. But unfortunately, uh, the Peace Clause has now expired, and the members have not yet been able to negotiate new rules. So the current situation with respect to the relationship between the disciplines in the subsidies agreement and those under the Agreement on Agriculture are somewhat unclear. There is a provision in Article 20 of the Agreement on Agriculture that says that the multilateral trade agreements, including the Agreement on Subsidies and Countervailing Measures, apply subject to the provisions of the Agreement on Agriculture. Although there has been some dispute settlement in this area and some clarifications provided, the truth is that as of now, uh, we don't entirely understand the legal relationship between the two agreements. But it is important to be aware that it is possible that certain elements of the subsidies agreement disciplines may not, in certain circumstances, apply to the agriculture sector. So with that by way of background in terms of the history of development of the subsidies agreement and its sectoral application, let's talk a little bit about what those rules on subsidies are. The first question, of course, is what is a subsidy? 
Now, the term subsidy can obviously have different meanings to different people and to, and to professionals in different disciplines. An economist might interpret the word differently than a lawyer would, for example. So it's quite interesting that although um, we have had rules on subsidies and reference to the term subsidies in the multilateral trading rules since 1947, it was not until the Uruguay round that we actually had a definition of the term subsidy. That definition is found in Article I of the Agreement on Subsidies and Countervailing Measures, and it represents one of the major achievements of the Uruguay Round. The definition has, one might say, three components, and I'm putting this in my own words now. It has components relating to the form of the measure. It has components relating to the actor who's taking the measure. And it has a component relating to the terms under which the measure is provided. Those are my words, and I'll now give you a slightly more technical description. I should emphasize, though, first that these are cumulative requirements. Okay, so all three of these elements have to be satisfied in order for a subsidy to exist. Let's talk first about the form of the measure. Under the subsidies agreement, in order for there to be a subsidy, there first has to be a financial contribution in the terms of the agreement. Now, it's clear then that not all government action, even if it confers an advantage, is a subsidy. Only government action that takes the form of a financial contribution has the possibility to be a subsidy. Article 1 has an exhaustive list of the types of measures that can be financial contributions and therefore potentially can be subsidies. I'll give them to you here. The first is direct or potential direct transfers of funds. And these are the types of measures that one might most traditionally think of as subsidies. For example, uh, grants, cash simply given to companies, or loans, loan guarantees, equity infusions, capital infusions of one type or another where a government takes an ownership stake in companies. These are perhaps what one might most traditionally think of as potentially subsidies. But there are several other categories as well. The next one is the foregoing of government revenue otherwise due. The foregoing of government revenue otherwise due is any situation in which the government relieves a company of an obligation to make payments that are otherwise due to the, due to the government. So typically, of course, this involves taxes. For example, a company might receive uh, an entitlement not to pay income taxes or an exemption from a sales tax. But it sweeps much more broadly than that. For example, an exemption from import duties can be a financial contribution in the form of the foregoing of revenue otherwise due. Or if a company is permitted uh, not to pay social charges of some kind or another, or is exempted from the obligation to pay unemployment insurance on behalf of its workers, all of these situations might represent the foregoing of revenue otherwise due. Now beyond this, another category of financial contribution involves the provision of goods or services. This is a situation, quite simply, where the government, for example, provides a service to a company, or the government provides access to goods to a company. Again, either type of transaction is a financial contribution. We'll see that doesn't mean it's necessarily a subsidy because the elements necessary to demonstrate the existence of a subsidy are cumulative. But it is a necessary element 
that, it, that you have a financial contribution in order to have a subsidy. So when the government provides a good or a service, that is a financial contribution and therefore potentially a subsidy. Also the case wherever the government purchases a good. The purchase of a good is a financial contribution which is potentially but not necessarily a subsidy. Finally, the agreement speaks of income or price support, which are terms that are typically used in the context of agriculture. Now, this range of financial contributions sweeps quite broadly, one might say, and that's certainly true. The reason for that is that the definition needs to be sufficiently broad so as to avoid circumvention. A government might find a variety of different ways to provide a subsidy. It can give $1,000 in cash, or it can relieve a company of an obligation to pay $1,000 at O's. Or it can sell the company a product at a price which is equivalent to giving it $1,000. Or it can buy a product at a price which is equivalent to giving it $1,000. We'll talk about these other elements that are necessary in a moment. Uh, but the definition is formulated fairly broadly in order to, a financial contribution, I should say, in order to ensure that the governments do not circumvent the subsidies disciplines. That is not to say, however, that all government measures are potentially subsidies. To the contrary, there are certain types of measures that clearly fall outside the list of financial contributions and cannot involve subsidies. For example, uh, when a government provides import duty protection to a domestic producer or a domestic industry, clearly if you're receiving protection in your home market, as a result of import duties, that is an advantage for domestic producers. It means maybe they can charge a higher price for their product in the home market. Maybe they'll have a higher market share as a result of the protection. So there's certainly an advantage to being protected by tariffs. But that advantage does not fall within the list of financial contributions that can be subsidies. Why not? I think quite simply because the WTO has some very specific rules about tariffs. Every member has a schedule of tariff concessions. So tariffs are dealt with in another element of the WTO agreements. And the members did not want the subsidy rules effectively to swallow the entire package of disciplines. So the subsidies rules do not treat um, import duty protection as a potential subsidy. So we've seen that the first element of a subsidy is financial contribution. The next element, as I said, has to do with the identity of the actor providing the financial contribution. Now a financial contribution can be provided by a government or by a public body within the territory of a member. Let's talk about government a little bit. Of course, a government might be the government of the member itself. But it could also be any other government within the territory of the member. For example, a provincial government, a state government, a municipal government, a regional government, all these governments within the territory of the member also have the potential to provide subsidies that are subject to WTO disciplines. So the first element of this actor uh, aspect of the subsidies definition has to do with the range of governments um, uh, that can provide financial contributions. But in addition, the subsidies agreement speaks of uh, financial contributions by a government or by any public body within the territory of a member. Now what is a public body within the territory of a member? It must be something beyond traditional government. It could be, for example, 
an entity created by the government to provide export credits. Um, it could potentially be a state enterprise a company which is owned by the government. And I should say here that the precise parameters remain unclear. There are wholly owned government enterprises or partially owned government enterprises. There is still not entire clarity about when financial contributions by state enterprises are or are not um, attributable to governments. And in fact, there's currently some dispute settlement taking place on the subject. But clearly, financial contributions by state enterprises may, in some circumstances at least, uh, be um, financial contributions by public bodies within the meaning of Article I. Finally, um, there uh, is a provision of the agreement that talks of Article I that talks about uh, entrustment or direction by governments to private bodies to provide financial contributions. The intention here this is, one might say, a form of anti-circumvention provision. And the intention here is to ensure that a government does not provide subsidies through entrustment or direction of a private actor so as to avoid the disciplines of the agreement. So we have to have, in order to have a subsidy, we have to have a financial contribution. And that financial contribution has to be by a government or a public body within the territory of a member. But there is here a third and very important element, which is the existence of a benefit. In order for a financial contribution by a government to be a subsidy, that financial contribution must confer a benefit on the recipient. Now, what does the concept of benefit mean here? Article 1 actually doesn't contain any definition of what a benefit is. But there has been jurisprudence in this area, and it is now quite clear that the concept of a benefit is to be established by reference to the market. And specifically, one looks at the financial contribution by the government and asks whether it's on terms that are more favorable than the terms that would be available to the recipient for the financial contribution in the marketplace. Let's give you a concrete example. Imagine that a government or a government bank provides a loan. Under what circumstances is the loan a subsidy? The loan would be a subsidy if the government was providing it on terms that were more favorable than the recipient could receive if, for example, he went to a private bank, perhaps a lower interest rate, a more generous grace period. Those are the types of elements one would look at to determine whether the loan conferred a benefit such that it represented a subsidy. Similarly, let's take the advantage of a financial contribution in the form of the purchase of a good. Governments buy goods very often for many legitimate governmental purposes. But if the government is paying an inappropriately high price by comparison with the marketplace, then that purchase of a good can constitute a subsidy. To take an extreme example, if you imagine that the government buys a plastic cup and it pays for that plastic cup $1,000, it should be clear it's not, not a legitimate purchase by standards of the marketplace, and the government is in fact providing a subsidy through the purchase. So this basic principle, reference to the marketplace, is the way to establish whether a financial contribution by a government confers a benefit. Now, if we have a subsidy, that still does not mean that the subsidies agreement applies disciplines to the measure, because there's one additional requirement in the subsidies agreement in order for a subsidy to be subject to the disciplines of the agreement. 
and that is that the subsidy has to be specific. This is Article 2 of the Agreement on Subsidies and Countervailing Measures. Now, what is this concept of specificity? It's actually a little difficult to explain. But the basic idea is that subsidies that are broadly available, widely available throughout an economy, are not subject to challenge under the agreement. And I think the underlying idea here is that governments provide a variety of public goods. So for example, if a government makes available fire protection services or defense services, educational services, if a government provides uh, access to highways, these are the types of behavior which represent public goods, which if the government makes them available widely throughout the economy, they're not subject to challenge under the subsidies agreement. Another example, imagine in the area of taxation that an economy is in a period of recession or depression. So the government decides to create an investment tax incentive applicable just for a year, perhaps, to stimulate the economy. So the government decides that for a year's time, people who make investments uh, receive certain tax benefits. But everybody in the economy who makes investments are entitled to them. This might very well be a subsidy within the meaning of the agreement, but because it's widely available throughout the economy, it wouldn't be a specific subsidy. And therefore, it would not be subject to the disciplines of the agreement. Now, in general terms, there are four kinds of specificity. A subsidy can be specifically provided to an enterprise or group of enterprises, that is to specific companies. It can be provided to a specific industry or group of industries, for example, the steel industry or the steel and aluminum industry, just to choose a couple. It can be provided specifically to producers within a particular region uh, within the jurisdiction of the granting authority. So if a national government makes subsidies available to producers, but only in one particular region of the nation, that would be a specific subsidy. And finally, any subsidy which is, falls within the definition of a prohibited subsidy, and we'll talk about what those are in a moment, is deemed to be a specific subsidy. So those are the four types of specificity within the meaning of the agreement. So in order for a subsidy to be subject to the disciplines of the agreement, it has to be a specific measure. Now let's assume that we have a subsidy, that is a financial contribution by a government or a public body that confers a benefit on the recipient. And let's assume that that subsidy is specifically provided to a particular company, to a particular sector. Um, what types of disciplines then would apply to these subsidies? Well, as I explained previously, the disciplines of the subsidies agreement are not intended to prohibit all subsidies. They are intended to address the trade effects of subsidies. So we'll see again that the architecture of the disciplines is specifically related to trade effects. In particular, there are two categories of subsidies that are prohibited under the subsidies agreement. And these are two types of subsidies that are specifically designed to affect trade. The first one, and probably the most prominent of the two, is export subsidies. Now what is an export subsidy? An export subsidy is a subsidy which is contingent in law or in fact upon export performance. Now obviously if you provide a subsidy that is contingent upon export performance, it is specifically intended to provide incentives for exports, that is to affect trade. 
and it's precisely for that reason that such a subsidy is prohibited. Now the key here to this definition is the, is the concept of contingency. The subsidy is provided because of actual or anticipated export performance. In other words, it's a subsidy which is provided when you export, but not when you don't export. For example, a government might provide um, an exemption from income taxes that is limited to income earned as a result of exportation. That would be a subsidy which is contingent upon actual export performance. If you don't export, you don't earn income from those exports, and therefore you don't get any special tax credit. A subsidy can also be contingent upon anticipated export performance. And an example of this would be a situation where the government decides to give an investment incentive, for example, to a company to build a factory. But it makes as a condition for the provision of that investment incentive that the company commit to export a certain proportion of its production. So the subsidy is provided contingent upon the anticipation of exportation. That also would be a, sub a subsidy which is contingent upon actual or anticipated export performance and would therefore be a prohibited subsidy. Now there is in Annex 1 of the agreement uh, a detailed list, an illustrative list, but a detailed list of a variety of export subsidies, which is well worth looking at if you're analyzing a specific case. The second category of prohibited subsidies are what I will call, for the sake of uh, in sort of layman's terms, I'll call them local content subsidies. A local content subsidy is a subsidy which is contingent upon the use of domestic over imported goods. Now this prohibition is in a sense a codification of an interpretation of Article 3.4 of the GATT 1947 um, related to national treatment. And the case that it's codifying was a case which is popularly known as Italian tractors. This was the case where the Italian government decided it was going to give subsidies to its farmers so they could mechanize. But in order to qualify for the subsidies, the farmers had to purchase tractors that were made domestically in Italy. They were not eligible for the subsidy if they bought foreign-built tractors. So this is a subsidy which is contingent upon the use of subsidy to farmers, which is contingent upon the use of domestic, that is Italian tractors, over imported tractors. Now, why would such a subsidy be prohibited? Such a subsidy is prohibited because, like an export subsidy, it's specifically designed to affect trade. Except in this case, it's not designed to promote exportation. Rather, it's designed to displace imports. Now, a common example of a possible local content subsidy today would again be a subsidy, for example, in, an, in the form of an investment incentive to build a factory, where a condition for the subsidy was that the producer promises to buy 50%, for example, of his inputs domestically rather than importing them. So that type of subsidy, like an export subsidy, is prohibited because it is designed to affect trade. Now, if a complaining member thinks, if a member thinks that there's a prohibited subsidy, its course of action is to request the establishment of a dispute settlement panel through the normal WTO uh, dispute settlement process, consultations, a panel, the possibility of an appeal, et cetera. And if it is found to be providing a prohibited subsidy, then the panel's recommendation will be that the subsidy has to be withdrawn without delay. 
Now, what about subsidies that don't fall within these two rather limited categories of prohibited subsidies? All these other subsidies, all these other specific subsidies, are what we call in the WTO system actionable subsidies. Any specific subsidy that is not prohibited is nevertheless actionable. For a subsidy to be actionable means uh, that it can be challenged in the dispute settlement system, but only if the complaining member can demonstrate that the subsidy is causing adverse effects to its interests. Now, by adverse effects, we mean, in some sense, adverse trade effects, if you will. And there are three types of adverse effects specified in the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures. So the first and arguably the most important type of adverse effect is referred to in the subsidies agreement as serious prejudice. Now, serious prejudice to the interests of another member. Serious prejudice can arise in several different ways. It can arise from what I will refer to as volume effects, or it can arise from what I'll call price effects. Volume effects basically mean lost sales in one way or another. For example, it could be the displacement or impedance of exports from the complaining member into the market of the subsidizing member. I'm trying to sell my product into a country where there are subsidies being provided, and I can't sell the product or I can't sell as much of it because I'm facing competition from a subsidized product. Or it can be displacement or impedance of my exports into a third country market. In either case, what we're talking about is I have, I've lost some sales, I've lost some trade because of the subsidies. You could also have a volume effect in the form of an increase in the world market share of a primary commodity. So if a WTO member is providing subsidies for a commodity, whether it be cotton or iron ore, it doesn't matter, and if it can be demonstrated that the effect of that subsidy is an increase in the world market share of the subsidizing member, well, of course, an increase in the world market share for the subsidizing member implies a loss in world market share for others. So that's another type of volume effect, another basis for a serious prejudice claim. But serious prejudice can also be established through price effects. A member can show that um, subsidies are resulting in price undercutting, that is, that its product is being undersold. A member can complain that a subsidy is resulting uh, in price depression, that is, in order for it to continue to sell its product in a particular market, it has to, its prices have to be reduced. A member can complain that the result of another member's subsidies is price depression, or excuse me, price suppression. Price suppression is a situation where the member is trying to sell the product. Uh, he, should ex he should reasonably anticipate he can obtain a higher price over time, but the price doesn't go up precisely because of the effect of the subsidized competition. So these are all different kinds of price effects that can be the basis for a serious prejudice claim. Now, the most difficult of part of a serious prejudice claim is perhaps uh, the need to show causation. It's not enough to show uh, that you're losing market share and that there are subsidies, for example, but you have to show that your exports are being displaced or impeded because of the effects of the subsidies. After all, you're complaining about the, about the subsidies. You're not complaining about a change in market share, per se. And that can be very difficult to establish. So that's serious prejudice. And serious prejudice can be used by a complaining member 
when it's concerned about the effects of subsidies on its position in the market of the subsidizing country, or in a third country for that matter, or in the world market. There is a second cause of action, second type of adverse effect, which is called material injury. In fact, there are three specific types of injury. There is material injury, there is threat of material injury, and there is material retardation to establishment of an industry. In all cases, the scope of this type of complaint is fairly narrow in that it only relates to the effects of subsidized imports. In other words, if you're a member and you want to complain about somebody's subsidies in the context of material injury, the complaint can only arise where subsidized imports are entering into your country. So it's only where, where subsidized imports are causing material injury to your domestic industry that you can make out um, uh, an injury claim. And that means, of course, that if the effects are occurring in third country markets, if your export interests are being effective, then material injury is not a cause of action which is available to you. Now there is a third type of um, adverse effect under the subsidies agreement, which is called the nullification or impairment of benefits accruing under the GATT 1994, and particularly under Article 2 of the GATT 1994. Now what are we talking about here? Here we're talking about a situation where a member has negotiated market access into the market of another country. As a result of subsidization by that other country, the value of those market access concessions, particularly tariff concessions, has been nullified or impaired. Now this is a fairly extreme cause of action. It's necessary to demonstrate that the value of the tariff concession is nullified or impaired, presumably that means very, very substantially reduced or eliminated. But it has been the basis for some successful dispute settlement cases, including a very famous case with respect to soybeans in the 1980s. So those are the three types of adverse effects. So stepping back a moment, in or if you want to bring a challenge under the WTO subsidies agreement, you have to show that there is a subsidy financial contribution by a government or a public body within the territory of a member that confers a benefit. You have to show that that subsidy is specific. And then you have to demonstrate either that the subsidy is a prohibited subsidy because it's contingent upon export performance or upon the use of domestic overimported goods. Or if you can't show that, if you can demonstrate that the specific subsidy is causing one of three types of adverse effects under the agreement. So those are the basis for a challenge of a subsidy under the WTO subsidies agreement. Now, earlier on I mentioned that there is a second track available, a second type of mechanism available to address problems arising from subsidies under the WTO agreement. The multilateral track that I've been discussing involves a dispute settlement challenge under, in, under the WTO dispute settlement mechanism. The alternative, and it's only a limited alternative, but the alternative is the use of a countervailing measure. The WTO subsidies agreement specifically authorizes countervailing measures, but only where there are subsidized imports, and those subsidized imports are, threat, are causing or threatening to cause material injury, or are um, uh, materially retarding the establishment of a domestic industry in the importing country. So uh, what is this countervailing measure? A countervailing measure is a special duty applied at the border by an importing country where it can establish that there are subsidized imports 
and if those subsidized imports are causing material injury to a domestic industry. Now, obviously, um, there are limitations to the use of a countervailing measure, most specifically that it's only helpful to you when you are seeking to address the effects of subsidized imports in your own market. A countervailing measure is not available to you if your export interests are affected by another member's subsidies. In that case, you have to invoke the WTO dispute settlement system. Now, these countervailing measures are, in a sense, a, um, a unilateral instrument in the sense that it is the importing country that makes the decision whether to impose countervailing measures in the first instance. But if you look at the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures, you'll see that the bulk of the agreement, in fact, is about countervailing measures in terms of the number of pages, and that there are a variety of very strict requirements, both substantive requirements and process requirements, that you have to respect if you want to impose a countervailing measure. And of course, if, a, if the subsidizing measure believes that the countervailing measure does not conform to these requirements, then they can challenge the countervailing measure in WHO dispute settlement, and this happens quite commonly. Now, I've said during the course of this discussion that all specific subsidies are either prohibited or actionable. That's currently the case, but it wasn't always the case. As a result of the Uruguay round negotiations, members negotiated uh, an Article 8, which refers to non-actionable subsidies. Specifically, Article 8 provided that three precise categories of very specifically defined subsidies would not be subject either to multilateral challenge or to countervailing measures. In general terms, I can describe these three categories as environmental subsidies, research and development subsidies, and subsidies for disadvantaged regions, although they were very strictly limited categories of subsidies. Now, why would the members have decided to make certain subsidies non-actionable? Well, you could say it's because they considered it very unlikely that those subsidies could give rise to trade effects. Or you might conclude that their view was that certain subsidies had such important policy objectives that they, um, sh that they should be permitted uh, rather than discouraged. In any event, the concept of a non-actionable subsidy was very controversial. And as a result, the members negotiated Article 8 as an article of only provisional application for five years. In 1999, when the article was about to expire, the members failed to extend it. As a result, the non-actionable category no longer exists. Although there are proposals in the Doha development agenda uh, to revive it. Well, that's an overview of the subsidies agreement. Before we leave today, I'd like to just say a few words about an interesting development. As I've explained during the course of this discussion, the structure, the architecture and logic of the subsidies agreement, at the moment, it's all about trade effects, effectively. In the DDA, however, one element of our negotiations is a negotiation with respect to fisheries subsidies. Now, this is a very unusual negotiation first because Although it's taking place in the context of the subsidies agreement, it is a sectoral negotiation. And as a general matter, the subsidies agreement is horizontally applicable. But it's particularly interesting as a negotiation because the focus is on the sustainability of fisheries resources rather than on the trade effects per se. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a negotiation of commercial interest because many members support the negotiations because of commercial concerns. 
but it means that there's also an element uh, uh, of environments in the negotiations and that the focus of the disciplines is as much on the environmental impact of the subsidies as it is on the trade effects per se. That makes the fisheries subsidies negotiations quite different in some ways than the existing rules. Uh, and it will be interesting to watch how those negotiations develop. Thank you very much.